Welcome back. In case you missed it, today is Wednesday the 8th of May 1946. Betty has settled in to the Nanchang office of UNRWA and has indeed submitted her first report, which was brief and covered three objectives, the first of which was to advise on transportation of personnel to this region from Shanghai, secondly to inform the supplies division of requirements for the trip, and thirdly to inform Shanghai on the personnel and accommodation in Nanchang. But before we hear Betty's latest letter home, We'll resume the story of UNRWA. Chapter 4 Know-how was provided by experts. The UNRWA staff itself was both multinational and multilingual. At its peak, it totaled over 12,000 people scattered across the globe a figure which does not include local employees. The largest concentrations were in the Washington headquarters and in the European regional office in London, with smaller concentrations in the missions of the receiving countries, in the liaison missions in the supplying countries, and in the displaced persons camps and assembly centres in Germany, Austria, Italy, the Middle East and China. There were 40 nations represented on this staff, a great body of international civil servants. Many of them were experts with global reputations, and these experts were the backbone of UNRWA. For you can't just stride into Europe or any other continent with loads of goods and services before knowing what is wanted, or where you can get it, or without finding qualified technicians to take charge specialists in administration, procurement, agriculture, transportation, civil engineering, industrial engineering, public health and medicine, social welfare, finance, accounting, communications, aerial transport, even plastic surgery. Naturally, since it was a pioneer organisation doing a job of a scope and significance new to history, UNRWA had no background of tradition system, language or currency. There were no signposts along the way. It had to learn by doing. Such conditions are not conducive to swift action, especially in international business where the tempo has always been slow. But UNRWA had to move quickly. Want will not wait. And UNRWA did succeed in getting its life-saving supplies into the receiving countries and in time. That it was able to do this was probably due to three main reasons. One, its international staff was imbued with a common loyalty. Only those who believed intensely in its objectives were willing to undergo the rigorous schedules and living conditions of many of its field posts. Two, a very large measure of executive responsibility was conferred on the Director General. His relationship to the Council was rather like that of a general manager to his board of directors. Within the bounds of established policy, there was an elasticity at the centre of the operations. There was control, of course, but not too many strings attached to that control. And thirdly, there was a wide delegation of authority. It extended through the whole of the field organisation, 
to the missions in each of the receiving countries, to the supply missions stretching around the globe, and even to a welfare team searching for allied children who had been stolen and hidden in German homes. A child was often discovered solely because of the initiative and the ingenuity of a dogged worker in an UNRWA uniform. Although scattered far and wide, UNRWA was a close-knit organisation, with each mission in frequent cable and telephone communication with Washington headquarters or the European regional office, and with officials often in the field to confer and review. One senior official, for example, travelled more than 200,000 miles in two and a half years, or a distance equal to eight trips around the world. Chapter 5. Dollars and Drachmas UNRWA was financed by its member governments. Each member government, which had not been occupied by the enemy, was asked to contribute 2% of its national income for relief supplies and services, and all countries, invaded or uninvaded, to contribute proportionately to the expenses of running the agency. Thirteen non-member governments and private persons and voluntary agencies in many, many countries were moved to give money or supplies or services. The three largest government contributors were the United States, $2.7 billion, or about 70%, the United Kingdom, $624 million, and Canada, $138 million. These, of course, were 1947 dollars. The fact that UNRWA drew its financial support from so many nations meant that its finance officials and accountants had to handle and keep records in terms not only of British sterling or American dollars, but also of French francs, Yugoslav dinar, Italian lire, Allied marks, Greek drachmas, Egyptian piastres, Maria Theresa dollars, and many others. In all, over 75 different currencies were entered on the UNRWA ledger. One of the baffling problems in handling these numerous currencies was estimating the rate of exchange. Exchange rates and values of some of the currencies fluctuated frequently and violently. There was a period in one of the countries when the price of a meal varied while it was being eaten. Less than 10% of the administration's total financial resources were in cash. Instead, most member governments made their contribution available in the form of commodity credits. In some cases, the commodities offered were not necessarily what UNRWA asked for or would have bought if given a free hand. For this reason, a few luxury and other items not really essential to relief showed up in receiving countries. The commodity credit system made the UNRWA supply program a post-war boon to commerce and industry of the heavily contributing countries, especially the United States, and used up surpluses for which there would otherwise probably have been no market at the moment. The supplies were bitterly needed, but who could have bought them? The story of UNRWA will continue in future episodes. But for now, let's check in with Bet in Nanchang. Mrs. Betty Souter, UNRWA in Bankman Building, 370 North Suchow Road, Shanghai, China, 8th of May, 
1946. Hello again, family and friends. I take every available opportunity to write a few further episodes, for there may come a time when days will go by with never a spare moment, and I do so want you to know as much as possible about the things I see and do. I shall tell you a little this time about the shopping areas, which are much the same in any big town. The streets are narrow and cobbled, always filled with a jostling crowd, all of whom seem to have something to sell. I often wonder whether, amongst so many vendors, there are a sufficient number of purchases, but the answer seems to lie in the self-sufficiency of each district within itself. It is a matter of exchange and barter rather than marketing. The shops are like wooden cubicles, varying from squares of about six feet to the more spacious at 15 or 20 feet, and all opening right onto the sidewalk. A few have wooden shutters and close at night, but mostly they remain open all the time, living and eating and selling in the same quarters. All of the goods are always out on display, mostly on open wooden shelves. Clothes hang from hooks in the ceiling in the same way as the meat, quite open and bare for inspection. The silversmiths and the silk vendors are a little superior, however, and show their goods under glass cases, each of which is kept carefully padlocked, protection against the recognised light fingers of their fellow men. In fact, most of the goods will be found to be securely tied to the shelves or hooks with a stout piece of string. When we go into the shopping area, we are followed by literally hundreds of curious people. The police in this town have been told to give us assistance and protection, and accordingly, we soon find ourselves with an escort to clear away amongst the people. The bargaining is most amusing. Invariably, the vendor will come down to half the original price and he thinks you are a mug if you don't put up some sort of a fight. At the bargaining stage, the crowd becomes particularly interested and several of the bystanders come in and take sides, mostly our side. We do not have to worry about the language difficulties as the sign language is most effective and there are always a few English-speaking Chinese amongst our audience who come forward without hesitation and seem to revel in the fun. We have picked up quite a few phrases ourselves through hearing them so often. One mostly finds that dealers in the same wares take up their stalls in the same street, and so the competition is great. Several families exist in and make their living out of the one shop. Always they crowd together, even when there is so much room around the vicinity of the town for expansion. The dentists and the barbers have portable shops, which consist only of a chair for the victim. They set themselves up on the sidewalk or on a vacant patch and get to work. Naturally, there is no sterilisation of implements, and everything is carried out with true community spirit forceps being lent in the middle of an extraction or the razor being passed from one to another in the barber's row. No wonder there is so much disease. The dentists are most primitive in their methods, but their patients accept the hauling and tugging without the flicker of an eyelid. All fillings are of gold. So also are the false teeth, if any. On the whole, the Chinese are fortunate in having very good teeth. 
strong looking and very white. Maybe because they eat so many seeds, nuts and half-cooked vegetables. The children always seem to be chewing at sugar cane and I imagine that that would help. When a barber really gets to work, he clears the heads of every semblance of hair, shaving the top surface of the scalp right off, I'm sure. Sometimes he gets more than the top surface, but nobody seems to mind about a little thing like that. Women never have their hair cut, but the young girls have straight bobs with a fringe and always look very quaint. Baby boys, the delight and centre of any household, have most of their heads shaved, but one little tuft is left where the proverbial Chinese pigtail always used to be. They always look very odd and patchy to me. These styles, for the men only, apply to the middle and lower classes, the farmers and peasants. The upper classes have adopted the Western style, except that their hair mostly stands straight up on end. All along the sidewalks, which incidentally are never more than two feet wide, there are dotted the Chinese version of our hot dog stalls. The vendor has a little charcoal stove, a few pairs of chopsticks and bowls, and a big pot of some weird concoction. Again, the community spirit prevails, and the implements are simply handed from one customer to another. There's no point in washing them anyway, because they are always licked clean. Talking of washing, everything that is ever washed is washed in the rivers, streams or gutters after the rain. The children from the nearby school are all taken down to the river bank about once a week to be washed. Their clothes are washed in the river, their rice bowls are washed in the river. At the stone steps where the washing takes place, there are high stone walls along the riverbanks to keep in the flood tides. The cooks do all their plucking and cleaning of fowls, scaling and cleaning of fish, etc. And believe me, the place stinks. But the kids take off from those steps and swim out into the muck and mess and love it. It always pleases and intrigues me to watch the Chinese parents with their children. They simply worship them, particularly their sons. Girls do not count for much in China until they become the mother of a son. But as small children, they seem to have almost the same attention from their doting parents as the boys. I really think that the children are probably spoiled, but they seem to thrive on it. Babies are dressed in the brightest and best silks that their parents can afford, while the rest of the family wears the inevitable blue peasant cloth. The caps that the babies wear are most peculiar, usually rising to a peak with a pom-pom or a few little bells on top. A tiny baby is usually a motley collection of colour, all clothes and cap. The father is usually the one to carry the baby or take the children out walking. Only once so far have I seen a baby strapped to its mother's back, and that was on one of the sampans where the mother had to do her share of punting. And incidentally, the women seemed to do most of the heavy work on the river craft, pulling at the wooden oars or pushing the heavy junks along with the aid of long bamboo poles. Just outside our river wall here, one woman goes out every day to fish. There are plenty of fish in these rivers, probably because there is so much refuse, etc., for them to feed on. 
and lots of them are five or six pounds in weight. Our woman on the riverbank, however, is content with the little fellows, and this is her manner of fishing. No bait is necessary. She has a square net, about four feet square, attached to the four corners of bamboo sticks, which in turn are attached to a long, thick bamboo pole, at the other end of which the woman does her heavy work. The big bamboo pole rests in a grooved piece of wood jammed fast into the wall. With a rowing motion, the woman sweeps the net through the water, going about three feet deep and lifting the net at an angle. She never stops, and to about every six or seven sweeps, she will probably land a fish. With an expert jolt of the bamboo pole, she bounces the fish right out of the net through the air onto the shore. Even the tossing of the fish to the shore does not interfere with the clock-like precision of her movements. She never seems to tire. Around our house here, we have lots of lovely birds, such as I've only seen before in the zoo. There are several golden orioles, which have attached themselves to our garden, which they never seem to leave. They are a glorious colour, and we can see them all the time darting in and out of our flowering cedar trees. But the most numerous are the herons, lovely, graceful things that live in the very tops of the cedar trees. They are white, grey and pale pink, sleek and tame. We like our birds. There are starlings, which we have destroyed frequently, and others very like starlings to look at, but with purple and gold heads, which are clean and pretty. Last night, a bat got into the house and caused much excitement as it darted from room to room. It was only a tiny one, but quite horrible. I've never seen one at close quarters before. Several of the men, including our two noisy Australians, have set out today in their jeeps for a three-week tour of the southern part of the province, Jiangxi, inspecting the farming areas and finding which parts are in the greatest need of assistance. It should be a most interesting trip, and I would have liked very much to accompany them. I shall probably go on the next one, however, which will only be for a week or ten days. Three weeks going is rather tough all jeeping over bad roads, camping and living under very rough conditions. Since I arrived at Nanshang, I have only once seen the sunshine, and the heat and steam on that occasion was almost unbearable. Every other day it has rained, on and off, and we get a little tired of it. At present there is a thunderstorm raging, plenty of noise and plenty of lightning. Unlike our thunderstorms, These keep up all day and night too. Actually, it does not matter much, since I only have to walk down the stairs to the office, and there are plenty of verandas and porches on which to get the fresh air. I would, nevertheless, like to get up a suntan, as the atabran is turning me pretty yellow, and the tan could cover it up a bit. Mosquitoes and flies are coming out now, and we take all precautions against every possible disease. Bubonic plague and smallpox are prevalent in this province, but we are all well inoculated. When I first set foot in Shanghai, stepping out of that sky master, I had to face up to yet another inoculation. 
the local water buffalo serum for the particular type of smallpox which has cropped up here. I protested that the former vaccination had not yet healed, but was given a new one just to be on the safe side. The doc gave me a pretty big dose, which did not take, so I feel pretty safe, and I'm not worrying about it at all. So much for the present. Cheerio to you all. Love, Bet. Dear Vic, we'll be thinking of you on your birthday and wishing you many happies. Inquired about sending a cable from here, Nanchang, but lost my ambition when told that each word costs the equivalent of 18 shillings. Please, therefore, accept my belated greetings. The enclosed slip of currency, though attractive to look at, is only worth about 0.001 of a penny. The dignified gentleman is Dr. Sun Yat-sen, father of the Chinese Republic. Each of the Chinese established banks can issue currency to its own design, so it is possible to gather quite a picture gallery. Lots of love to all three. Bet. Production credits for this episode. Produced and narrated by Warren Henry. Voice of Betty Souter by Helen Polkinghorn. And the featured tune to Each His Own by Freddie Martin which made it to number seven in the top 100 charts in 1946. Must insist on two more to be kissed 
Or they'll never know what love can do To each his own I've found my own